today we get to study about Eve, and she is such an interesting character, isn't she? I, how many people would love to just give her a swift kick in the you-know-what when you get to heaven, right? But, you know, the truth of it is, we're no different than her. Have we been in the Garden of Eden? Eden? Had it been, you know, Jeff and Connie in the garden? We would have done the same thing, right? But one thing I did find that I didn't put in my notes is found in James chapter 1, verse 13. And it says, and remember, when you are being tempted, do not say, God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful action, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. Now, keep that in mind as we look at the scriptures regarding Eve and how she's tempted by uh, the devil. And so before we get into God's word, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so, so blessed to be able to read about these women that are extraordinary and yet so simple. They are just like us. And yet we find these stories to be compelling because we each see ourselves in these women. And as we study about Eve, would you make that story come alive that we would be able to see for ourselves by example what not to do and what perhaps to do instead. And so be with us, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, in the beginning, you always got to go to the beginning of the story. This story is about the beginning of time itself on earth. See, God created the world, and then he created Adam. And God knew that Adam would be lonely, so this is where we find our first passage in Genesis. Oop, I'm messing with my little thing here. There, yay. In Genesis 2, 15, 25, it says, The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. And so this was his job. This was Adam's job. He was to tend the garden. He was to take care of the animals. He was to take care of the plants. That's all he had to do. It kind of sounds nice. And I kind of picture it looking like that. Isn't that nice? I have no idea where that was, but it's Eden to me. But then it goes on to say in 16 and 17, but the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat of the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. Now keep that in mind. All God says is don't eat of this tree. And so, no doubt, there was all sorts of yummy, yummy fruit in this garden. But there was only one that you couldn't touch. And I kind of feel like uh, it, Adam was like a little child. If you ever tell your children, okay, you can, you can go here, but I don't want you ever to go there. Don't ever go out into the street. It's dangerous. So where does the kid want to go? In the street, of course. It's our human nature, isn't it? So it's kind of like Adam's just that way. Ooh, how come I can't eat from that tree? But why would God put something in the garden that would tempt Adam? 
Haven't you ever wondered why did he have to put the tree in there in the first place and start this whole thing uh, from the very beginning? But God put that tree of knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden to give Adam and Eve a choice to either obey God or to disobey God. We are always given a choice, aren't we? Adam and Eve were free to do anything they wanted. And to me, that makes perfect sense. Because if you force someone to love you, do they truly love you? Wouldn't you always wonder? If you force your child to love you, I mean, wouldn't you rather have a kid come up to you and give, give you a hug and a kiss and say, Mommy, I love you, than tell me you love me? You see the difference? God is no different. He wants us to come up to him, put our arms around him, and say, Daddy, I love you. He doesn't want to force us to love him. And so I think that is why he put that tree in the garden in the first place. It was a test for Adam and consequently Eve. Then verse 18 says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. See, God cared. He knew that uh, his creation were, were social beings and that they would need companionship. And so Adam needed a helpmate, someone to keep him company that was like him. And then verse 19 says, So the Lord God formed from the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And the man chose a name for each one. So Adam got to name all the animals, you know, dogs and cats and aardvarks and all those kind of things. And he gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, all the wild animals. But still, there was no helper just right for him. Imagine, if you will, all these animals, male and female, that's how he created them, are being paraded in front of Adam. And he's going, well, you know, the lions, there's a male and a female. And there's a male and a female bird. And there's a male and female monkey. And there's a male and female, I mean, just fill in the blank. And he's going, well, where's mine? And so God, of course, being the loving God he is, in verse 21 says, so the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. All right, and I have to address this notion that all men are missing a rib. Okay, that is not true. I actually looked it up. It's not true. They have the same amount of ribs as we do. However, Adam was, of course, missing one. But it would be similar to saying if you lost your hand, that further generations that you produce would be missing a hand. So that's not the case. So Adam had all his ribs, but the, then the Lord God made a woman from that rib, and he brought her to the man. But why take his rib? Don't you find that interesting? Well, I guess because you do have several. I guess you could spare one. But you see, Eve was taken from Adam's rib because she was his equal, and God intended her to stand beside him. Isn't that a wonderful notion? Not below him, not above him, not behind him, beside him. 
And Adam and Eve were literally to be one flesh. Just like a marriage ceremony today, they become one flesh. They become united in all things. And although Adam was the head of this small family, he would no more mistreat Eve than he would his own body. That's the way God intended it from the very beginning. And let's look at Adam's reaction. At last, the man exclaimed, Woohoo, I finally have mine. I've seen all these animals have their mates. Now I have mine. It says, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. So this is the first mention of Eve. So in other words, if Eve was to have a genetic test, the 23andMe or ancestry, it would say, okay, that her and Adam were 100% alike. Okay, wrap your head around that one for a moment. But this explains... Verse 24, why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. So this is the first mention also of a marriage between a man and a woman. They are to be as one person. I once heard it explained, it would be like, you know, in your marriage ceremony, you get super glued together. And if you were trying, if you were to try to separate the two, you know, just say your hand, if you've ever glued your fingers together, you know how much that hurts to separate them, you usually take some flesh off with it, but you see, it, would, it was meant to hurt if you were to separate the two. That is what the marriage ceremony is supposed to be like. Verse 25 then goes on to say, now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. So life was good for Adam and Eve. They hung out in the garden with God. God would come in the cool of the day and walk with them. And they had lots of pets. They had lots of good fruit to eat. They didn't know shame, which I looked up shame and it says a feeling, a painful feeling of humiliation or distress caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. So they were free from that. So just put yourself in that place. Can you imagine if we lived without any guilt whatsoever, no regrets? Wouldn't that be glorious? I know I would enjoy it. But they had no shame because they had never sinned, at least yet. Now let's go to Genesis 3, chapter, excuse me, chapter 3, verses 1. The serpent was the shrewdest of all wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? I love the way Satan is always twisting things. And it was actually kind of the first lie ever recorded in the Bible, mind you. And God had not said specifically not to eat from any tree, did he? God said, only eat, do not eat from one tree. See, Satan is very sly in the way he, he words things. Verse two, of course we may eat from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. Now, personally, I think her first mistake was engaging in this conversation in the first place, right? He does not play fair, ever. And remember, he was able to convince a third of the angels to follow him. So he's pretty good at this convincing stuff. Now let's look at her response. Verse 3. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, 
she's quoting God now, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. Now, do you see any untruth in that statement? Did you find it? Or even touch it. So I think we have here our first little white lie. Perhaps even our first recorded sin. God didn't say not to touch it, although that's probably not a good idea. I mean, these happen to be mangoes and they look really tasty, don't they? But, you know, if God said to, to stay away from it, it's a good idea to stay away from it. But apparently she was near the tree. So what was she doing hanging out there? I mean, she was probably looking at it going, wow, that is such a pretty tree. I would really like to eat from that tree. Or maybe just touch it. Maybe just kind of pet the fruit a little bit, you know. And, and so she's setting herself up. What does Satan tell her? You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman, which is another lie. She may not be struck dead immediately, but eventually... She will die now if she eats from it. But how many times has a person been tempted to sin never knowing the consequences that would happen? So many times we don't know what a small sin can lead to, an indiscretion, what that could lead to. How many times has the act of adultery started with a, a very innocent lunch during work? or something like that. You never intended it to go that far. And the next thing you know, you're embroiled in a horrible circumstance. Satan never gives us the full story, does he? I mean, if he was to say, hey, why don't you do this and destroy your life? You'd go, no. But he doesn't say that. Oh, look how glorious it'll be. You will feel validated, secure. You know, he tells you all those things. Okay, and this is exactly what he's doing with poor Eve here. Verse 5, God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. So the enemy kind of goes in to close the deal, saying, oh, you will be like God. You know, you will know what is good and evil. And Eve is probably going, well, how can, I mean, how can that be bad, Right? I mean, I'm going to know what is good and what is evil. I mean, I want to know what's evil so I don't do anything evil. You see how he can really get the wheels going in our heads. The enemy knows what bait to put out there for each one of us. Uh, as some of you may know, we love to fish. And many times our family vacations are, are spent fishing, like up in uh, the Mammoth Lakes area. And wherever you go you find out what the fish are biting. So if we go into a lake, we'll ask, okay, is it Thomas Bullions or something like that? That's a type of lure. Or is, you know, that the fish, or are the fish eating worms? Or are they biting salmon eggs? So you probably have no idea what I'm talking about unless you were into fishing. But see, these are all different kinds of bait because we want to catch the fish. See, Satan does the same thing. He knows what bait to put out there to catch each one of you. And you have to be aware that he's throwing the bait out there. There's a reason why they call it a lure. It's to lure you in so that you take a bite of it. And once you bite it, guess what? He jerks that pole back and you're caught. Verse 6, the woman was convinced. She bit the lure. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious 
and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. So she eats from the tree and then offers it to her husband. Now I see two possible scenarios here. First one, Eve was alone and ate the fruit, then brought Adam a piece. He never saw the conversation between the serpent and Eve. And so he was innocent, thus didn't know it was from the bad tree. But that's very unlikely because they were probably never by themselves, ever. I mean, what reason would they be to be wandering around the garden by themselves? Okay, number two, the most possible scenario is that Adam was with her, just like it says in this version. And if this is the case, then he watched the whole thing transpire, didn't he? He's just like, you know, hey, I'm just going to let her sink, our, sink her own ship. And then he goes, oh, that sounds pretty good too. He didn't stop it, you see. And I think this is kind of the first mention of peer pressure. But I've even heard that the reason why Adam ate the fruit is because he did it out of love for Eve. Because he didn't want Eve to die and him have to live without her. So I'm going, okay, well, that's very romantic. That's kind of a stretch here. But verse 7 then goes on to say, at that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. Now, I, have you ever seen a fig tree? They're pretty cool. But how would you sew them together? I'm, okay, that's just the way my brain works because I'm going, I'm a seamstress, so I'm going, how do you sew leaves together if you don't have thread? I mean, really, so it must have just been they tied knots or something. I don't know. But see, that's, I have to know all the facts. I'm one of those kind of people. But what's the best remedy for shame, though? If you feel shame for what you have done, what's that best remedy? Confess. But that's not what we do here. Verse 8, when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden, so they hid from the Lord among the trees. Now, of course, God knew exactly what happened. We can never fool him. He knows everything about us. We are constantly exposed to him, and this is a good thing to remember. No thought is kept from him. No action that we do alone is kept from him. So always remember that. And so God knew exactly what it was going on, and they were acting like children. Uh, whenever my boys would do something wrong, they always thought they could hide from me, but I always knew their hiding places, you know, in the closet, under the bed, you know, all right, come out, you know, and they're going, okay, I go, what'd you do? And then they would end up confessing, you know, whatever they did. But I always knew when they were hiding under the bed that they'd done something bad, you know, it's like, and they're always amazed at how I knew these things. And it's like, I know you better than you think. But what does Adam say? Verse 10, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. And this whole thing is to me is just so sad. We have God saying, Adam, where are you? Where are you? He had known what had gone on. 
He knew that Adam had sinned. He knew that both of them had eaten from the tree and done what he had asked them not to do. Now their eyes were opened. They saw good and evil. God was trying to protect them from that. And so God was not scolding Adam like, where are you? He was saying, Adam, where are you? I, I desire to have communion with you again. But Adam was hiding because he felt shame, he felt guilt. You see, everything that had been pure between God and his creation was now dirtied. And Adam was trying to cover up that dirt. He was soiled. Verse 11 says, Who told you you were naked? The Lord God asked, Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? I love that God always gets to the heart of the matter. You know, he doesn't beat around the bush, does he? In this case, he doesn't beat around the tree. But, see, he wanted to say, Adam, please come clean about this. And the man replied, it was the woman you gave me. She gave me the fruit and I ate it. Now, I love that. So, here we have Adam blaming two people in one sentence for his wrongdoing. He was blaming the woman and God because God gave him the woman. You see how that works? And this will be forever the mantra of mankind, won't it? Whether you're a man or a woman, you will always try, at least I know I'm, I'm speaking for myself, I always try to find the reason why I'm not guilty when I do something wrong. I want to find the excuse, the loophole. See, that's our human nature. God says, you know what? Just Get to confessing it, admitting that you're wrong. And I, I love that he insinuates that Eve made him eat the fruit. Okay, one thing I do know about men and women is that men are generally stronger than women, right? I don't think we'll ever have a, I'm talking physically, not mentally, emotionally, or anything like that, just physically. So there is no way that, that Eve is going to jump on top of him, open his mouth, and stuff fruit into his mouth. So uh, he did this willingly, didn't he? Verse 13 says, Then the Lord God asked the woman, What have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. Well, at least she was being truthful. She was deceived. And I find deception in general so insidious. Paul talks about deception in 1 Corinthians 11.3, and he says, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by, Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion from Christ or to Christ. And so this is a common problem even today in the church. It was a problem back in uh, the beginning of the beginning of time. It was a prob problem during Jesus's time and Paul's time. It's a problem for us today. So Paul is saying that Eve was created with, was, she, was he saying that Eve was created with a tendency to be deceived? No. In fact, He's describing a flaw, or rather than describing a flaw in God's design of the woman that provided for a deceived Eve, the emphasis is on the cunning, craftiness, and trickery of the one who deceived her. That is what he is saying here. And he's saying, and he can deceive 
all of us, male and female alike. She was not created as one that was easily deceived, but he was pointing out just how easy the enemy can deceive all of us. And he's very masterful at doing that. We know the end of the story in Genesis, don't we? That their punishment was they were kicked out of the garden. God placed an angel at the gate of the Garden of Eden. They weren't allowed to go back in ever, this beautiful place. They could no longer eat from the tree of life. The tree of life was a good tree. It was the tree that gave them eternal life. They were no longer uh, able to eat from that. Therefore, they no longer had eternal life. Uh, of course, they were barred from the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was one of the main reasons. But it's kind of a sad story, isn't it? And so they had to scrap a living outside of, of the Garden of Eden, and it had to have been hard. The Bible tells us they had to toil. They had to work hard in order to make a living out, whereas before it was something easy and beautiful, and they got to, to eat fruit all day. I love fruit. It sounds like a, a glorious thing for me. Apricots happen to be my favorite. If you happen to have a tree, I will take all and, and every apricot off of you. But, um, but what can we learn from Eve, and how do we implement these lessons in our lives? Well, first thing we see is God's design for marriage. Uh, Adam and Eve were to be that example of a marriage. For all their faults, they were the first example, weren't they? In fact, Jesus reinforced this marriage in Matthew 19, 4 through 6. And he says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And therefore God has joined them together. Let not man separate. So God created Eve to be Adam's helpmate. Adam was to be Eve's protection. And granted, Eve and Adam didn't do a very good job from in the beginning, but nonetheless, that was Eve's calling, wasn't it? But God did not give them the same responsibilities. And here's where we see the difference between men and women. He did make them equal partners with talents, gifts, and abilities to help each other fulfill their individual responsibilities and fulfill what God had uh, ordained them to do from the very beginning. Uh, he created each one of us for a specific purpose. And so, and it, this is the symbolism of Eve being taken from Adam's rib. And it's very beautiful because it bears testimony of the truth that God intended from the very beginning that we are to be co-laborers. We're to be partners in this relationship. And for men and women to be equal partners, they have to work side by side in all things, understanding your different roles. The roles are not like one is the better role and the one has the lesser role. That's not it. We each have our gifts and talents that God has given us. 
Can you imagine how different the world would be if we would kind of stick to what God has planned for each one of us? Instead, we want to do things that we think may give us uh, more glory or notoriety. But I know most marriages and relationships would be much, much better if the man and the woman understood what their role was. But no doubt, Adam and Eve had to work on some issues after they were kicked out of the garden. Boy, can you imagine? Talk about the silent treatment. I mean, <laughs> but which one was the worst? I mean, which one? I mean, we have, I mean, think about that whole scenario. We got Eve talking to the serpent, the serpent talking Eve into eating the fruit, and Adam just going along with it, and then Adam blames her, and she's going, oh, wait a minute, weren't you there? I mean, wow, that had to have been a real quiet walk out of the Garden of Eden because they had, they had really made a mess of things. But you know what? They worked it out, and I think they were married about 900 years. So, you know, I think they probably figured, <laughs> figured it out. But... One note, but the one last point is that our scripture says that God has joined us together with our husbands, and we're not to let anybody separate us. That means the laws of the land, our friends, our family. Once you're married in God's eyes, you're married forever until you die. Not forever, but until you die. So remember that. Lesson number two. Don't let yourself be deceived as Eve was. But how do we do that? The best way to spot a counterfeit, you know this, ladies, is to do what? It's to study the real thing, isn't it? I mean, we can study counterfeits all day and we'll just get confused. But if you study a real thing, take like the American dollar, if you study a dollar all day, when somebody slips you a fake one, you'll know it right away. It doesn't smell the same. It doesn't look the same. It doesn't, it doesn't feel the same. See, that's how we can tell if somebody's trying to deceive us. Is if we know the word of God, when it comes across our path, a deception that is, we're going to go, hmm, doesn't smell the same, doesn't feel the same, doesn't look the same. See, we, that's how you do that. That's how you are, are prevented from deception. 1 John 4.1 tells us, Dear friends, do not believe anyone who claims to speak by the Spirit. I'm talking about the Holy Spirit here. We must test them to see if the Spirit they have comes from God. For there are many false prophets in the world. There were false prophets back then. There are false prophets today. There are people that are trying to draw us away from the real gospel. And the way that you prevent that from happening, again, is know what the real gospel looks like. And how do we do that? Studying the word of God. And that is how Jesus himself handled the serpent. I love this story. It is so encouraging. Matthew 4, 1 through 11. This is an actual place that they estimate this scene happened. So that kind of gives you some context. And it says in verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. Why? So that Jesus could be acquainted, I think, with temptation. He wanted to know everything that we went through. So he allowed himself to be tempted. And for 40 days and 40 nights, he fasted and became very 
hungry. Boy, howdy. Um, if, I, if I skip breakfast, I'm hungry and grumpy. But see, Jesus had just been baptized, and he was beginning his ministry here on earth. And so uh, a great way to, to start a ministry is by prayer and fasting. So important that we, we lay aside all physical appetites and we focus on the Lord. It's a wonderful way to start, and that's the example he's giving us here. Then verse 3. He says, during that time, the devil came to him. If you are the son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, if you were really hungry, can you imagine how tempting that would be? You know, you, he was probably so hungry, he, the rocks were looking tempting. But see, the enemy, again, knows how to tempt you. You know, there's that lure. Oh, some nice warm bread, maybe a little honey spread on that and some butter. Yeah, you get the picture. But Jesus told him, no, the scriptures say people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Of course, he's referring to eternal life being far more important than this temporal life. And so our first temptation here is the physical appetites. He was fasting for a spiritual reason, and Satan was trying to get him to relinquish that commitment. But isn't that very similar to the temptation that Eve had to, to go through? Oh, look, the fruit looks so good. I bet it's sweet, too, and juicy, and, and you can just bite into it. Yeah, you can see how that would be appealing. So then our next temptation, verses 5 and 6. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple and said, if you are the son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say he will order his angels to protect you and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. So Satan is now tempting Jesus to use his power. After all, he is God. Interestingly enough, Satan is now using scripture as part of the temptation. And he, it, it says in Psalms 91.11 that God will protect him. And so he's throwing scripture in there. Ever seen the enemy use scripture to try to beat someone up or deceive them? It's a common practice I think the enemy uses a lot. Jesus responded, the scriptures say, you see a, a trend here, you must not test the Lord your God. He uses the word of God. Jesus is saying, you must not test the Lord your God. Jesus didn't need to prove to Satan who he was. I mean, he created Satan. And I find the whole thing kind of laughable. You know, here's uh, the creator being tested by the creation. Verse 8 and 9 says, Next the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. I will give it all to you if you will kneel down and worship me. Wow. So now we're kind of getting into the nitty-gritty of what Satan is really after. He wants the world. He wants because if he can get Jesus to bow down before him, that makes him the ruler of the universe. He's always wanted to be like God. That's why he fell in the first place, isn't it? He goes, I want to be like the most high. I should be able to be like the most high. 
And so now he is offering Jesus the world. He says, I'll give you the world back because by this time, you know, we had given it over to the enemy. Our sin had caused him to become the ruler of this world. And he's saying, I tell you what, I'll give you the world back if you just bow down before me. I'm sure Jesus never was even tempted by that because he knew what he had to do. He came to redeem the world, not to, to bow down to uh, a created being. You see, Satan knew what Jesus was up to. He knew that Jesus came to die for our sins. Satan knew that. And if he could get Jesus to not have to go through that and say, hey, you don't have to do this whole dying on the cross thing because Jesus knew what that entailed. He knew what was going to happen. And here Satan is giving him the opportunity uh, to escape that, that horror, that pain, that suffering. But Jesus never bit. He knew exactly what he had to do. And what was our answer that Jesus gave him? Get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him, for the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Again, Jesus responds with the scripture. That shows you how important the word of God is in our lives. It is what keeps us from harm. And then my favorite verse in this whole conversation, 11, then the devil went away. Yes, and angels came and took care of Jesus. So the devil knew he had been beat. See, we can have that same victory in our own lives. That's why I love this. James 4, 7 and 8 tells us, Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. So the key is resisting. Don't listen to him in the first place. If you entertain him, you see, that is what Eve did. She entertained the devil. She was conversing with him. She allowed him to speak. We can't allow him to do that in our lives because he will wear you down. You just need to resist him and he will flee. Why will he flee? Because it's not doing him any good. He's wasting his time with you. He says, well, I can't get her to, to sin, so I'm going to go find someone else. And there's plenty, isn't there? But stop listening to those lies. You know, we have that temptation to sin, but we also have a temptation to believe the lies that he tells us, don't we? I mean, how many times have you believed the lie that you're worthless or undeserving of his grace, not worth saving? See, those are the kind of things that Satan puts in our heads. And once he can discourage us, then it's just like throwing out those lures. We'll bite them. But always remember that you have a lot of value to the king of kings. If Satan knows that you will not succumb to his temptation, then he will give up and he will go away. I have learned this uh, in, in my walk with the Lord. Albeit not always perfectly, but most of the time, if I see it as the Lord is trying to beat me down for some reason, then I will resist it. I won't let him get a foothold, and eventually he gives up and he goes away. So wrapping up, there isn't a whole lot in the word of God about Eve, but there's a lot of people like Eve in the word of God, isn't there? 
There's a lot of people that have been tempted. There's a lot of people that have uh, uh, succumbed to that temptation. There's some that have been victorious. But we do know that she was human, just like us. I mean, perhaps you were thinking, how could she have fallen in the first place? I mean, she had it good. And yet she still fell. That should give us a little encouragement. You know, when we start uh, uh, feeling down about our own, our own shortcomings, that, you know what, she had it really good and she still messed up. I find comfort in that. But see, the same serpent that tempted Eve is still tempting mankind today. The scripture has much to say about temptation, and one of the verses that gives me the most comfort is found in 1 Corinthians 10, 12 through 13, and it says, if you think you are standing strong, be careful not to fall, okay? That's our first clue, isn't it? If you think you're being strong, be careful not to fall, because if we think we're standing strong, we think we're, we're strong. Our strength is not coming from the Lord, so be careful. That's our first First clue, the temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. In other words, we are all tempted in the same way. Why would, why would the enemy use a different technique? Technique, excuse me, I'm not saying that word right. Technique, there we go. You know, he uses the same technique for each one of us, doesn't he? Different circumstances, but he knows exactly how to get us to bite that lure because it's worked for thousands of years. He says, God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than we can stand. Do you believe that? I love that. In other words, he will never allow us to not be able to resist. That's important to know. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. Look for that way out. That's very important. So many times when we're being tempted by sin, we don't really want to look for the way out, do we? And let's be honest. We go, oh, I kind of like this. This is fun. I like gossiping. We're not looking for the way out. We're not looking for the righteous way out. But God will never tempt us more than we can bear, and he gives us an exit. Sometimes, literally, an exit. You know, you just, you know what, it's time for me to go, and you walk out the door. I mean, you don't want to be rude or ungracious or anything, but, you know, sometimes that's what it takes. But this is a promise, ladies, a very important promise. Look for that escape route, and remember that God is always faithful. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that you do give us an escape. Each time we are tempted, we don't, know, we don't have to go down the, the road that Eve took. We don't have to fall into the temptation and, and destroy things in our lives. Give us the strength, Lord, to resist the devil so that he will flee. Sometimes, Lord, we are weak, but you make us strong. Help us to depend on you anytime and every time we are tempted to do anything that is against your word because we don't want that, that, that union we have with you 
to be dirtied or to be broken. And so guide us, we ask, Lord. We desperately need your guidance and your wisdom. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.